If you are looking to elevate your leadership and drive your nonprofit forward, I invite you to subscribe to the Successful Nonprofits newsletter. Every week, I curate exclusive shareworthy content that sparks inspiration, innovation, and conversation. From the latest trends to timeless advice, the weekly email newsletter is your all-access pass to a treasure trove of resources. But receiving the newsletter is not just about staying informed. It's also about getting our best content first. Subscribers get first access to our newest downloadable templates designed to propel your leadership and amplify your impact. And that's not all, my friend. We are constantly working on new ways to support you and your mission. So as a subscriber, you'll get updates on our latest projects, opportunities to participate in surveys, and a say in the topics that we tackle next. You will essentially get me as a consultant, coach, and confidant in your inbox, ready to help you navigate the challenges of nonprofit leadership. So if you're an executive director, board chair, or a nonprofit leader who believes in making a difference, join me as a newsletter subscriber. Visit SuccessfulNonprofits.com forward slash newsletter to sign up today. And now, friend, let me take you to the episode you've downloaded. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dolph Goldenberg. And listeners, I am bringing you an incredible conversation with the academician, the practitioner, Roger Martin, who is the author of When More Is Not Better. I also have to share something with you. This is take two. We got about five minutes in, and I realized that I forgot to press record. So we're starting over, but I am sure that we are going to have an even better first five minutes than we did the last time. So let me tell you a little bit about Roger Martin. He is widely hailed as one of the people who may help us save democratic capitalism. He is hailed as someone who could help us reverse the trajectory that we are currently on, where the middle class is shrinking and the rich are getting richer and a lot of the people in the middle class are slipping into poverty. And that's where his book, When More Is Not Better, comes in. But before I share with you a little bit more about that book and introduce him to you and bring him on the podcast, let me say just a bit more about him. If I was to read his full bio, well, it would take 30 minutes. Literally, that practically the entire podcast would be done. But let me just start by telling you that he is an accomplished academician and thought leader. I first encountered him actually through HBR, which is Harvard Business Review. I think you all know I'm a subscriber and I really like to nerd out on it. That's where I first encountered him and then found his book and then realized that he has run nonprofits. He has served on the board of a nonprofit. And again, he is an academician. He spends a lot of his time thinking about ways that organizations, and that includes both nonprofits and for-profits, can be more effective. Now, you might notice that I did not say more efficient, and that's because, and he and I are going to talk about this as a economic society, whether we're talking about the for-profit sector, the nonprofit sector, or the governmental sector, we have become obsessed with efficiency. 
And I believe by the end of today's episode, you're going to be on the bandwagon that we should be thinking about effectiveness more than we should be thinking about efficiency. And so with that, it is my pleasure to welcome Roger Martin to the podcast. Hey, Roger, welcome to the podcast. Uh, It's great to be on with you. Thank you for having me. So, you know, right after I introduced you, we had such a great little conversation, and then uh, we danced over to the first question, and we're just going to dance right over to the first question this time. So you talk about the fact that sometimes efficiency is bad. And the first time I read that, I had a little quizzical moment in my brain. So talk to me and our listeners about this. Sure. And most people will have that quizzical moment because kind of the notion that was instilled in us is, well, just more efficiency is is always better. And I, I would say that more efficiency is better for a long time, right? Uh, if you've got a terribly, terribly inefficient uh, system, you know, you can make advances by uh, uh, pushing the efficiency. But what we've done in our economy and our business is in it has become so obsessed that we've pushed it past the, the point of optimality. And in particular, what we've done is used proxies to measure efficiency that end up being problematic. So we'll say, well, it's more efficient to have uh, lower labor costs. Right. We, we, if we have this many people on, this, on the shop floor at a given, given time, we wouldn't want to have more than one labor hour more on, on the shop floor. So let's tamp that down so that we got zero extra hours on, on the floor. Now, that may feel efficient because we've gotten rid of all slack, all waste, but you know, if there's a customer on the store floor who needs a little extra time and it's not in your algorithm for how many hours, person hours of uh, clerks do you need and checkout people do you need per, per customer, then suddenly you get bad service and that customer may buy less, may not come back. And so even though you're on your proxy for efficiency, kind of labor hours per guest, that looks good. The actual result is not so good. Uh, it's uh, less traffic, fewer purchases, uh, less happy customers, etc. And that's what happens when you take a proxy for efficiency and say, we're going to hammer that to the absolute extreme. And that, unfortunately, Dolph, is what's happening writ large in, in the economy. This obsession that says, let's figure out a metric for efficiency, and then let's absolutely push that as far as uh, humanly possible. Before we hone in on how this impacts the nonprofit sector, I'd also love for you to share with our listeners why this obsession with efficiency is creating a more bifurcated society economically, one where the rich get richer and the middle class is shrinking. Yeah, well, what it's, what it's done is kind of suppressed the wage levels of that, that average, that median family uh, in America. And so what we're getting are, it, it's a very much a talent-based economy now where, where if you're special and unique and they say, I don't want somebody like Dolph, I want Dolph, <laughs> if, if, that, if, if that happens, then you're okay. 
But if you're not, if you, if you say you want somebody to, to fulfill this function, what's happening is those wage levels and benefits and everything are just being ground down in an attempt to be ever more efficient. How can we be more efficient? Let's grind those down. And so what's happened is the economic growth is going to the people at the tail of the distribution, the upper tail of the distribution who have that kind of special talent that en enables them to essentially negotiate for themselves a bigger piece of the, of the pie. So that's why we're having pretty decent economic growth. I mean, it would always be nice to be higher, but the economic growth in the economy hasn't been so bad over the last 40 years, but the median income growth has been dreadful, just dreadful. And I think a, a, a real culprit is this push for efficiency that is, is, is putting the damper on middle-class wages. So it's not just, as you were initially describing, okay, let's maximize efficiency and have the fewest number of work hours possible. It's also, let's maximize efficiency and pay as little as possible. Yes, that's become a, a, a proxy, right? Uh, it, uh, we're efficient, we're efficient if, if we can cut labor costs. We're efficient if we can cut procurement costs, even if that means putting our suppliers out of business or, or putting our suppliers in a position where they can't actually invest to give us better things and better, better products, better inputs for our, our services. So these are all, it's all just the notion ha has become if, I can show on a given proxy, procurement costs, labor hours, labor costs, whatever. If I can show improvement there, we must be doing better. No, <laughs> not, not necessarily. It's interesting you say that. And I recently was working on a blog post on wages in the nonprofit sector. And I just did a quick Google search and, you know, looked up some case manager positions within a few miles of my home. And... Not surprisingly, and, and those that listed, most did not list compensation, but those that listed compensation, you know, and these are case managers working with vulnerable populations, often impoverished people. Almost every single person who accepts that job, if they have even one dependent, would qualify for food stamps. Yeah, that's, that's what we've gotten to, which, which it just, it's the zero sum game approach rather than the positive sum game approach. Like what I like, and I talk about in, in the book is, is Costco, right? You know, when you think about Costco, right, you think, Hey, they're, they're a club store They're They have to be really sharp on prices or, or nobody's, nobody's going to go there. And so you'd say, ah, and the way to do that is to grind down your labor costs, not have much labor, uh, you know, minimum staffing in the stores, uh, kind of low, those low retail wages. And they don't, right? Their lowest wage, wages are in excess of $20 an hour. That's like the absolute bottom at, at, uh, at Costco. Uh, and, they, and they figure out what number of labor hours they need in the store to serve uh, uh, customers and then just add a, add a big slush factor. Uh, it's not exactly clear what it is, but it's like 10, 15%. Just have, have that many more, pe more people. And you'd say, that's insane in a club store. You have to, you know, where, where, where you're in a competition, but they do better than everybody else. Why? It's because A, people love them. People love Costco. And why do they love Costco? 
It's because when they're in Costco, they're treated uh, with respect by, by employees who love Costco, love their job, know their job well, don't have one single job, are often cross-crained to do a bunch of jobs, so it's a more enjoyable job. And they're in an organization that promotes almost entirely from within. If you want to be CEO of Costco sometime, sometime, you better start on the store floor. You're not going to get there. They don't parachute in MBAs to fill in the top spots. So that's a sort of a positive sum game. It's sort of like, why don't we just pay everybody a whole lot and make their jobs uh, better? And people will, uh, will come and they're, you know, in their category, they're the runaway, runaway leader on all the, all the metrics, sales per square foot, profitability, da, 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 all, of, all, of, uh, all of that. So you can sort of take this zero-sum game up, uh, uh, approach right? Where you think it's sort of a machine, as I talk about in the book, it's a machine where, oh, if we just take a few labor hours out, da-da, the machine will produce more. I would argue that Costco says, no, 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 no. It's a complicated system. It's a complex system. And you got you to gotta think about the system as a whole. And that includes thinking about the lives of your employees and thinking about the effect that your employees feeling good about them, themselves, their life, their economic situation will impact positively on the customers. It's interesting you say that, and I was not aware of that about Costco until I, until I started to follow you a little bit. But I'll share with you, we became Costco loyalistas during the pandemic because we live in a state that maybe is not, not maybe, we live in a state that's not take, did not take the pandemic nearly as seriously as other states, and so there was not a mask mandate, et cetera. And we were so impressed at the steps that Costco was taking to protect not just the people walking in, but also the employees that were walking in. And every employee was taking it seriously. Like we'd been to other stores where masks were mandated, but employees would wear the mask around their chin. And Costco was taking it so seriously. I did not fully understand how they had such a strong esprit de corps or corporate discipline, if you will. Um, and now I better understand it. It's because they treat their employees well, they pay well, and they've not stressed their employees out by stretching them thin. No, no, they just just the opposite. And 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 again, this is not my discovery. This is a wonderful woman named Zainab Tan, who's an MIT uh, uh, professor who wrote a book called The Good Jobs Strategy. And I, I'm now chair of the Good Jobs Institute that's trying to to uh, instill this in companies across uh, the country. It's such a different model, and it's so doable, right? And it's to me so sad that that the dominant model in business is this efficiency-driven model. And then it's supported by, by all these other parts of the system. The, you know, the capital markets care about your quarterly earnings and say, and so you're encouraged to sacrifice the future to get your quarterly earnings up. All of those systems, there's no great evil person in behind all of this, designing these things to produce bad results, but they just happen to combine to do that. And that's what we want to reverse. And I think that happens in the nonprofit sector, too. And I think it does not happen around quarterly earnings, but it does happen when you start to talk to funders, especially large foundation funders who will say, well, you've had deficits for the last two years. And until you fix that, we are not going to be able to invest, i.e. give you a grant. Absolutely. I mean, it, it, it's... I mean, I've, I've seen that world, as you may know, I was on the board of the Skoll Foundation for 14 years. Uh, and so we were a foundation making grants. And yes, you have to be 
really careful about the incentive structure that you set up with your with your grant uh, because you can cause the grantees to do things to keep costs down in ways that actually aren't good for their the customer base that they're trying to to serve, whatever underprivileged uh, customer base they're trying to to serve. And so you have to actually think as a foundation about how will the grantee who I'm giving money to be best positioned to serve the people it's attempting to to serve. You You can't just think about the one stage how are we going to make sure uh, our money is being well well spent? No, that's not that's not enough. You've got to think all the way th- all the way through that chain. I believe. About ten years ago, I ended up having a serious conversation, which went nowhere, but had a serious conversation with a large community foundation in, in one of the mid Atlantic states. And the reason is they actually had a rule that said if you had a deficit in the prior year, you were not eligible for a grant in the current year. And I pointed out to them that they had a number of organizations that were no longer eligible for funding after they implemented that rule because they own large facilities but have small budgets. And so, and of course, they were having to depreciate the non-cash depreciation, the facility. And so as an example, in one case, the organization had about a $700,000 a year budget, but was depreciating non-cash $200,000 a year. And so literally, I I was saying to the foundation, you would require that they have a $200,000 cash surplus. What organization in the nonprofit sector is going to operate with that? And, you know, pretty much they said, well, we, you know, we, we studied this diligently and we'll review it again in three years, but this is what our policies are going to be. Yeah. No, it's, it, it's the, it's this great schism that I think people need, just need to understand better between your model, what you're trying to accomplish. And I'm sure what they're trying to accomplish uh, is we would like to make sure these nonprofits are being financially responsible and not getting themselves into deficits and then, and, and then needing a bailout and et cetera. Uh, so I think we could all probably agree with that, with that goal, but then it gets impl- implemented through a proxy right? A rule in this case, oh, if you have a prior year deficit, no. And what happens is that is that people start to think the rule is the model, right? So they think the rule of I won't fund people who had a deficit is what's going to make sure that, that we have kind of fiscal responsibility. It's not, right? The map is not the territory. The proxy is not the model. Uh, that doesn't mean you shouldn't have proxies, but you know, if you have only one like that, it, it's much more dangerous. It's much more easy, easy. It's easier for you to fall prey to thinking that the that it is, the map is the territory when you've only got only got that one, and that's why like shareholder value maximization is just a terrible one. So many sins are committed in the pursuit of shareholder value maximization and. I would say it's a little bit, you know, Aristotle had wise words on this. Aristotle said way back when, if a person uh, sets out in life to be happy, uh, the person is not likely to end up happy. But if the person sets out to live a good life, by which he meant a life of servitude to your fellow citizens, your community, you're likely to end up happy. So he was a system dynamics guy, right? Saying, saying, 
sometimes when you try to do something uh, uh, explicitly, you're not going to accomplish it. And, and I often think that that's, that's the sad thing about lots of these rules of the sort you've, you've said. You think the rule is going to get you more of what you want, and the rule ends up getting you less of what you want. Mm-hmm. Which almost seems to tie in Aristotle's concept there, almost all seems to tie into the a concept that you talk about, which is not pursuing a singular goal. Yeah, I, I, I think singular goals just are, are kind of dangerous in a complex adaptive system, right? Uh, they, don't, they don't work in a simple machine-like system, right? Push the gas pedal and the car will, will uh, uh, speed up. That's okay to have, to have goals in those simple systems, but we're talking about uh, complex ones. And I love, I use the example of Southwest uh, Airlines, right? The most successful airline in the US over the last half century now uh, that it's been in operation. And there might be some people uh, on the right surface of it would say, oh, I don't, I don't like that Southwest. They're a low cost carrier. I bet they really are cheap on everything and they beat up on their employees to get their costs down and, and the like. And the answer is exactly the opposite uh, because Southwest Airlines has goals of being the lowest cost, highest customer satisfaction, highest employee satisfaction and most profitable airline. And you'd say, wait a minute, wait a minute. How do you get to be low cost and highest employee satisfaction? The answer isn't terrifically uh, complicated in one sense. It's uh, they pay their employees more than any of the other airlines. So the the low cost uh, air uh, carrier has got higher wage levels. And everybody says, oh, they're non-union. Nope, they're as unionized as as every other airline. They're not a non-union carrier. So you say, whoa. Well, how do you pull that off? And the answer is by being more clever. It forces you to be more clever. And they say, you know what? We're going to pay more per labor hour, but we're going to have fewer labor hours per passenger seat mile by organizing the business system to waste fewer uh, 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 labor hours. So we're going to have one kind of uh, jet. So we don't have to keep moving around the uh, the gates and and having and we can customize our equipment for putting stuff in the hold of a of a seven thirty seven, all sorts of things. I could go on and on, but they've done all sorts of things that make them able to fly. Uh, for less labor hours per passenger seat mile. So their costs are lower per passenger seat mile, which is what matters. Uh, Then you can charge uh, lower prices and they've got happy employees who are cross-trained, will do multiple jobs. And in the labor negotiations, what they they say uh, in the labor negotiations is salary, you know, it's almost like you tell us, right? Uh, but on these other things, we need uh, all sorts of flexibility. So you'll do many jobs because you'll be happier and we'll be more and we'll be more uh, uh, efficient. So their labor negotiations are completely different than the labor negotiations of of the others. And it's I think it stems from having this notion of we are not pursuing one thing; we're produce, pursuing a whole lot of things that look insanely difficult together, but that's our job. That's our job to figure it out. So how do we take this Southwest model, this Costco model, and apply it to our Main Street nonprofits? Maybe those that have a quarter million dollar budget or a $5 million budget. 
Sure. Well, I, I think it's what I would say to any one of them is think about having more than one goal and have, think about having ones that are at least mildly contradictory because that will force you to do what you're doing more cleverly and it, and it will not uh, let you slip into the, into the notion that our model is, is this proxy. So, so let's, let's just say, I don't know, you're a non, non-profit uh, kind of working on recidivism. And if you say, and, and our goal is to get recidivism percentage, you know, kind of down as far as, as far as possible, you know, I think that's a good idea but if that's your only goal, then you'll think of your model as minimal recidivism. Whereas you might want to have the, have, have the goal being, I want uh, to have lower uh, recidivism and I want to have the quality of life of the uh, ex-prisoner to have these kind of qualities. You're not just working on one thing. You're understanding that it is complex. Now, it turns out, I think both will, will, will help one another, but they're, they're different goals so that you can lay out uh, uh, those and then not be focused obsessively on, on recidivism. And what I would say for nonprofits, now, then this may be controversial, but um, it comes to my experience. I was uh, f- uh, for 10 years on the board of uh, uh, trustees of the finest children's hospital in Canada and one of the finest in the world. It's called the Hospital for Sick Children. It's generally ranked in the top three in, in the world. And the comp committee uh, put in a an incentive compensation plan for the CEO, a wonderful woman named Mary Jo Haddad, who'd uh, who'd risen uh, uh, shockingly up from being a nurse to the CEO. And I say shockingly because it's really tough. There's, there is real bias by the docs against nurses rising that high. It's great, great, great woman. Loved, loved, loved her as, as, a, as a CEO. And the Ontario government was asking, asking the hospitals to put more incentive-based compensation uh, into CEO uh, comp. And so the comp committee can, comes to the board with this plan that, that uh, she's going to get this kind of bonus if she gets, you know, infant mortality down here and morbidity and da, 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 and, 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 and all of, all of these things, she'd get these, these bonuses. And I turned to Mary Jo in the board meeting and said, listen, I know you're, you know, you're very diplomatic and everything and, and you want to you know, go along with, with what a compensation committee says in the interior government, but seriously, Mary Jo, like, are you going to work harder and more diligently to have more babies come out of this hospital alive because you're going to get an extra, I don't know, $50,000 or $75,000 bonus? Like, really? And she sort of smiled and, and said, you know, very diplomatically, well, I understand why we have to do these things, but Roger... I became a nurse, you know, whatever it was, you know, 28 years ago because I wanted to save babies. Uh, and I've been saving babies uh, my entire career. I wake up in the morning trying to save baby. I go to night thinking about how I can save ba- uh, uh, babies the, the, the next day. So no, uh, and uh, this is not going to have any impact. And I said, and wouldn't you say it's a bit insulting and she said, I, I know no insult, insult was intended, but yeah, it, it kind of is, right? The notion that I would try harder to save babies because I've got a bonus uh, coming if I, if I, if I do. Uh, and so I would say in nonprofits, <laughs> don't do that, right? You kind of recognize why people are in nonprofits, right? 
they're not in nonprofits to earn incentive compensation, right? They're in nonprofits to make the world a better way, place in some, in some way, in whatever way they're, they're thinking about. So don't have a model of human beings that is inconsistent with those, those, uh, uh, those human beings. So Roger, I have to share with you, I made that mistake as an executive director once, and I got to share with you how I made it. And gosh, was it a big mess up. So I was running a housing organization. Yes. And we came up with, you know, the board and some other really smart folks, we came up with this great idea that we were going to start to evaluate our housing case managers based on the time from program admission to transition into permanent housing. And we were going to tie that performance evaluation to compensation. And there were some unintended consequences we had not thought through. And so when, you know, we ran it as a pilot, which is probably a good thing to do, you know, see how this is going to work. So we ran it as a pilot. And here's what the initial numbers showed. There was this flurry of activity in the final month before an evaluation when clients would be transitioned into more permanent, more stable housing. And when we evaluated three months later, a higher percentage of clients failed to maintain their stable housing as opposed to the old model. And the reason is, now that we're evaluated on it, what was it what, wasn't it a Drucker that said, you know, what's measured is what people are going to act on? And so now that people knew they were being evaluated on it, people were like, oh, I want to look good for this evaluation. I didn't even think it was about the compensation. They just wanted to look good for the evaluation. So they said, oh, I need to get my numbers up. Who do I think I could possibly get into more permanent housing now? Whether or not they were ready. And so we, we I had to go back to staff and say, gosh, this was a knuckleheaded idea and we're going to rethink it and this is not how we're going to do it. That's a, that's a Dolph, that's a great, a great story. And I think, I mean, in some sense, everybody's got to learn that kind of lesson because this, I mean, this is, this is not, this is not uh, uh, simple and you have these great intentions, but I think one of the great, great misses in the world of compensation is the degree to which compensation works too well in some sense, right? It, right? It, it, in that case, it worked too well. It got people to do things that actually weren't in, in, your, in your interests. And, and that happens kind of over and over uh, and over again. But here's an interesting uh, thing. There has not yet been a rigorous study done which demonstrates that uh, incentive compensation is correlated with organizational performance. Wow. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. There are, you can correlate it to a certain extent, although the correlations are less strong than you would think with individual performance, but is an organization just a sum of individuals or is it an organization that works like an organization? The answer is it works like an organization. And so when you try and give each individual an incentive compensation, there's enough cross roughs between those that it, that it that essentially it dampens the effect. So think of the millions and millions of person hours a year that are spent designing incentive compensation systems, and then measuring people against those incentive. Then having the conversations about what incentive compensation you earned. None of it is correlated with uh, uh, performance of the of the organization. Wow. So really what I, what I think I hear you saying is 
take the time to hire right and pay and pay fairly and you know maybe even pay quote unquote more than fairly so if going wage is not a livable wage maybe pay even more than fairly um, and then and then really focus on making sure people are doing their jobs well yeah it's it's having a I, I think everything you said is 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 right. Hire hire uh, carefully, but then also the thing I'd say is just create a a culture uh, that reinforces the the things that you want to accomplish. Right. So the culture at at Costco is of there are customers we must we must serve them well. We must help them find what they what they want to uh, find. Give them the advice they're they're seeking. They're our lifeblood, you know. And so you have a culture where people can feel a sense of pride for doing that. I wrote an article once called "The Power of Happiness," and I and I made the the following argument: People are happy. Uh, there's a holy trinity of happiness. People are happy to the extent that one, they're a valued member of a community, two, that they value, and three, is valued by people outside the community. That makes a person really happy. So if, you're, if you are a valued member of uh, a Costco kind of, let's say the butcher uh, uh, de- department, you're a valued member of that department. And instead of thinking, yeah, but they all, the rest of them all suck and our department is terrible, but, but thinking, Hey, and I value that we're good. We're good at what we, what we do. So the fact that they say, Hey, you know, Adolf, you're a good, you're a good butcher. You serve the customers. uh, Well, you'd be happy. And then if every once in a while, the general manager, you know, points out uh, to everybody in the store, what a great job the butcher department has done. Then, then you say, I'm really happy. Right? Because you're a valued member of a community that you value and is valued by people outside. Or if the you know, Fortune magazine and the Wall Street Journal writes stories about how great Costco is, uh, that, makes you, that makes you happy. Um, and so I think that level of happiness is way more important than incentive compensation. Now, you said something really critical early, early on, fair. If your compensation is unfairly low, None of these things, none of these things will work. But if your compensation is considered fair, right? Fair for the fair for the task you're you're uh, you're doing. And I would say the Costco employees don't think their compensation is excessive. I think they think it's fair because they go over and above what their what their buddies over at BJ's or 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 Sam's uh, Club or whatever uh, their competitors uh, uh, do. So if you've got fair compensation then the way you're going to get great work is by focusing on the trinity of happiness uh, and making sure you have a culture that says to you, Dolph, you know, what you're doing as a, as a butcher, awesome. Your customers love you. Your, your, your fellow workers love working with you. Awesome. That is going to be more valuable to you as a human being than saying, because of that, we're going to give you, you know, uh, a $10 performance bonus or a hundred dollars or a thousand dollars. Yeah. Uh, uh, even that is not what makes you uh, happy. And that's, I think why incentive compensation is, is, uh, is so silly. Roger. I love that. And part of what I love about it is not only have you shared with listeners why sometimes efficiency is a bad thing, you've also shared the secret to happiness. And, you know, that's something we all kind of want to know. So I love that. And I think it's important for, for nonprofits for what it's worth, Dolph. So I think 
though nonprofits have to be careful, nonprofits should have that happiness advantage, right? Uh, but I think a bunch of them squander it by being, by, by being bureaucratic, right? Uh, and, and I think, I think you, you, you've got to recognize that you're doing a good thing as, an, as, as a nonprofit, but then make sure people feel, feel that, that, that sense that I'm a valuable member of the community that is delivering, delivering this. And one of my rules is, while in theory, I could imagine a situation where an organization celebrates too much. Theoretically, you could spend all, all day long celebrating and, and not getting anything done. So theoretically, that's possible. Empirically, I've never seen an organization that celebrated too much. Hmm. I've seen thousands that have celebrated too little. You should, feel, you should feel like you should celebrate every week, right? To, to, to just celebrate, hey, that was a great thing we did, we did this, this week. Dolph, you know. Just saying, you, you you went out of your way to help that that uh, you know the housing thing you know uh, uh, get get housing, and I, and I just want to uh, uh, give you a pat on the back that you know that's that's what we do at when we're when we're uh, uh, at our best. That's celebration, and it makes a world of difference because it gets the the trinity going. That is such a great place for us to lay it down is just for us as nonprofits to remember we've got to be celebrating as an organization and the people we work with. We've got to be celebrating. Now, I want to make sure I've asked you the off the map question. And Roger, that's a question we ask every guest. It's a different one for each guest. It just helps us get to know um, the guest a little bit more as a person. And sometimes the off the map question is not that far off the map. And in this case, it turns out it's not. So you talked about the secret of happiness, and you've talked about the importance of celebration. So here's my question for you. You have had an accomplished and storied career. But I'm curious to know, over the course of not just your career, but even pre-career, maybe when you were a teenager, over the course of your life, what has been your favorite job, the job that brought you the most happiness, and why? It probably was... Right, a unpaid nonprofit uh, job, uh, and that was I went on the board of Tennis Canada, and in uh, uh, 2005, Canada was just terrible in, ten- in in tennis, hadn't had a great player in 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 forever, and we, a little cabal of us on the board, made a choice to compete to be. A lead, what we said was a leading tennis nation, uh, and we managed to transform uh, Canadian tennis so that you know, kind of uh, everybody's like baffled at how is it that we have so many, so many uh, great young tennis players. We've got the two best young male tennis players in the world. Uh, we've got you know top ten, uh, top twenty uh, tennis players like we've never had before, and so it's just fun, fun to take on something where where basically everybody said you just can't do that. It's not doable. It's a cold country where with no te- you know tennis tennis courts, no tennis history, no tennis anything. And now uh, people from around the world are studying the Canada to say how the heck can a, a non tennis country, uh, a hockey country, <laughs> do this well? So that that was that was fun in part because it was pro bono. I like you know I like doing uh, things like that. I'm I guess nationalist enough to say. Uh, I, I like to see Canada doing that. And it's now I've 
had the desire to show Canadians that the number one reason that Canada doesn't succeed in things is it doesn't believe it can. And in this case, we said we can succeed at the highest level. Uh, we have nothing going for us to do that, but we can do it anyway just by saying we're going to and then being able to, uh, to put together a strategy and then sticking to that strategy for, for doing it. So that's probably, probably the funnest uh, thing I did. I love the fact that it was an unpaid, bored job that brought you the most happiness. That's incredible. Yeah. It's very interesting, uh, uh, Dolph. I, I have such a con- contrasting experience. I've absolutely loved my nonprofit boards, Tennis Canada, Hospital for Sick Ch- uh, Children, uh, School Foundation. There's a, a bunch of others, but uh, those would be ones that people would, would know. Of. I've really, really, really disliked my time on corporate boards. So, so I don't, I don't go on corporate boards uh, and, and I'm always on, on nonprofit boards. Like I'm the chair of the good jobs Institute uh, now, which I'm, which I'm, uh, which I'm uh, loving. And that's one of the interesting things I think about non nonprofits and for all your listeners, not in um, the for-profit world, board members are substitutes for management right? They both have the same training and, and they think of themselves as substitutes. So management doesn't like to listen to the board. In nonprofits, it's much more often a situation of compliments, right? So the, the docs and the chiefs and, and the, the surgeons and everything at sick kids were happy to hear me talk about, well, this would be a way of thinking about that. And they'd like, oh, that's you know, kind of, that's interesting. I didn't tell them how to do surgery. So I respected them, but there, there's more of that. So it's one piece of advice I'd give to nonprofits is you can get a lot out of your board because they're complementary and treat them as, as complementary, utilize their complementarity, and you can get a, a heck of a lot uh, out of it in ways that for-profit boards, uh, I think management doesn't get. Uh, as much out of them. So hopefully that's a little helpful tidbit for all of your nonprofit uh, executives out there. That's incredibly helpful, Roger. Thank you. And listeners, if you want to learn more about Roger, and there's so many reasons you should be following this person. Really, there are. First of all, go to rogerlmartin.com. There you can see his blog. You can see links to his writings, and the guy's prolific, like really, and not only prolific, but some of the highest quality in terms of management counsel and advice that I read comes from him. And also, do not forget to make sure you go to Amazon or Barnes & Noble or your bookstore of choice and get his book, When More Is Not Better. I believe that book should be a must-read for all of us in the nonprofit sector. Hey, Roger, thank you so much for joining us today. Dolph, it was was a blast. I I really enjoyed the conversation. And listeners, don't forget, you can get the link to Roger's website, the link to buy his book, and more at our show notes at SuccessfulNonprofits.com. And if you like today's episode, there is one in particular I really want you to listen to, and it's Lead True with Dr. Jeff Thompson. And the reason is, I kind of feel like Dr. Thompson epitomizes what we talked about today. And in that conversation, he talks about helping his hospital take the radical step 
of taking about a quarter of their endowment and instead of investing it in the market where in index funds where they felt like they had kind of a guaranteed ability to generate income and generate investment growth, they made the decision to take a quarter of their endowment and invest it in small businesses in the low-income community around the hospital. And I think it's the perfect example of sometimes more is not better. Sometimes you can meet your mission just a little bit better when you do something that's outside the box. That, listeners, is our show for the week. I hope you have gained some insight to help your nonprofit thrive in a competitive environment. And please, don't forget, I'm not an accountant nor an attorney, and neither I nor the Goldenberg Group provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied on for tax, legal, and accounting advice. I say this at the end of every episode, so it should not come as a surprise. If you find yourself in need of this type of counsel or advice, please find a credentialed, qualified professional who can assist you. And if you don't know of someone, reach out to me. I might know someone in your area.